Hello. So glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well, and we're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today we'd like to continue investigating a theme that we're seeing based originally on Romans 10 and verse 17, where Paul tells us, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. In Galatians 5.6, he indicates that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So we come to faith through hearing the word of Christ. Hearing the word of God proclaimed, we read it, we come to hear it, we accept the message for what it is, the word of God. But how do we go from that point of hearing and accepting the word of God and the gospel to living the faith and love? How do we make that connection? That connection, that process, is the application process, where we take what we see in Scripture and try to make it work in our lives. Now, this is a very crucial and critical stage of understanding in the faith. If Christianity is just an interesting set of ideas, or even a good set of ideas, or a nice philosophy, it's completely insufficient. An academic faith, uh, James would argue in James 2, 14-26, is dead faith. The idea has always been, from the beginning of Christianity, that it's not just about hearing the message, it's not just about understanding the message, it's not just about accepting the message, it's also about doing the message. That Christianity is about following Jesus in 1 John 2 and verse 6. To do his commandments in verses 3 through 5 beforehand. Now Paul will talk about displaying the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. And James in James 1, 20 through 25 exhorts Christians to not just be hearers of the word, but also doers of what they hear. So application is crucial, but unfortunately it's also fraught with a lot of difficulty. Because the vast majority of variants that you can see among different religious groups that claim Jesus is in this application process. What do we apply from what we see in Scripture? What don't we apply in Scripture? And how is that applied? And this becomes very difficult because the Bible was written to people thousands of years ago in a very different context and cultures. So what are we supposed to directly absorb and directly apply as if they're speaking directly to me? What do we learn by example from those who come before us? And what are the things that perhaps we should avoid, even though we see them in Scripture? And so how do we, essentially, apply the message of God and the gospel to life? And we're going to look at three major themes in terms of application. And the first theme is discernment. In John chapter 7, as Jesus is speaking to uh, his fellow Jewish people, he says in verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What Jesus is getting at here is don't just look at the surface, dig deeper, which means there needs to be what we call discernment. And this is a very important part about the application process, is discernment. In 1 John 2, 3-5, we need to do the commandments of Jesus. We need to follow the life of Jesus. And therefore, that means that his example, if nothing else, provides a pattern that we are to follow in 1 John 2, 6. There are going to be times where we need to make necessary inferences, where we see the text and the story the text is telling, and recognize that certain situations had to be the case. Uh, for instance, in Acts 8, that when the uh, Philip preached Jesus to the eunuch, and the eunuch desired to be baptized, that somehow Philip had mentioned that baptism was a response of faith. But in all these things, we're going to still be 
confronted with this challenge that has come to every single age. How do we live the gospel message here and now? How do we follow the Lord Jesus as Christians in the 21st century in America or wherever we live? And that's going to require discernment. And that's not just going to require discernment of the uh, the scriptures and, and what God is saying through them, even though that is extremely important, but also it requires us to understand what's going on around us. In Matthew 16 and verse 3, uh, when the Pharisees said he just wanted to test him, he talked about in verse 2 that they know that it's fair weather if the sky is red. In the morning, it's stormy if the sky is red and threatening. And he condemns them because they know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but they cannot interpret the signs of the times. They can't discern among them uh, the things going on. And perhaps how God is involved in them. And so, not only do we need to understand what God has said, we need to understand who we are and where we live and how we're going to live that out. And it's a very frustrating challenge to a lot of people. A lot of people want to throw up their hands. Why has so much been left to us to sort and figure out? Some people may feel, well, God's abandoned us. We got this script that came from the first century, and the story that sounded great until the end of the first century, and now people act like they're on their own trying to figure out how to make that work 2,000 years later. But we do not need to despair, because God has not abandoned us. Because throughout the New Testament, this is the story. People have come coming to grips with who Jesus is, his life, death, and resurrection, and what it means to live as his follower afterward. Yes, we live in a different time and age, but what God has established as right and wrong behavior is still right and wrong. Cultural viewpoint changes have not shaken God's standard of justice and righteousness. The works of the flesh still condemn in Galatians 5, 17-19. 15 through 21, excuse me. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, verse 20 through 24, still need to be manifest, and those who uh, there's no law against them. And we also have to remember, this is why in James 1 and verse 5, that James tells us to pray for wisdom and discernment. That we need to pray to God. And do we think that if we pray to God in faith, that He's going to leave us abandoned without that wisdom? No. But maybe we need to stop being frustrated for a second, although it's understandable it's frustrated, and see that maybe it's not a flaw, but it's actually a virtue that there's this flexibility and that there is, quote-unquote, so much left to us. Because the core truths of Christianity are timeless. God's standard of holiness and righteousness is timeless. But the way that people look and talk and think, what they emphasize, have changed over time. And, and that's not even just a time thing. It's also in different places. Uh, you go to different parts of the United States even, let alone the, the different countries in the world. And there are some areas where there's different sins that people struggle with more than others. Uh, there are certain parts of righteousness that is taken for granted as part of a culture uh, and other areas that are much more challenging to try to follow. And they're different in different cultures. Now, God in Christ has not hamstrung the kingdom with a message that makes sense only in certain cultures and certain times. Because, yes, we clearly need to first make sense of it in this first century Mediterranean world, but so much of what God is saying in that first century Mediterranean world resonates throughout time. It's not just specific there. And his goal is not for us to walk around in toga, speaking Koine Greek, meeting in upper rooms, and trying to somehow recreate the first century. That's not what is intended. That's why it says in Romans 1, 16, 17, that the gospel is for everyone the Jew first, and also the Greek. Colossians 1.6 says it's gone all over the world. 
So the gospel is revealed so they can be proclaimed to all, heard by all, and therefore applied by everyone to their lives. But that's going to demand this discernment. And so discernment must be done. And we need to understand our context. We live in a certain time and place. What parts of the gospel are more difficult to accept in 21st century Western America than others? The areas that are easy for people to accept, we may not need to put as much emphasis on, but we might need to put more emphasis on things where culture and the scriptural message collide. We need to kind of go down a middle path, though, in that discernment, because we need to avoid, on the one hand, uh, just telling things people want to hear. In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, through 4, those who uh, are the false teachers are those who will tell people what they want to hear and because they no longer want to endure sound doctrine. On the other hand, it's very easy when talking about these issues of disagreement that we just become cantankerous and emphasizing points of disagreement um, and hammer the points of disagreement, disagreement in such a way that we repel. And we're not really speaking as with grace, seasoned with salt. And we're not really understanding how to walk along outsiders in Colossians 4, 5, and 6. Now, there are times and seasons to discern how to encourage those who are outside the gospel, but only to exhort them toward faith and obedience to Christ. In Romans 5, 1, 5, 16, the idea of obedience to the na- of the nations to come to the gospel of Christ. What good is it, though, if all we do is sit around talking about how they have failed to meet God's standard, especially when they're not in the same room with us? Uh, especially when we don't do that in light of our own difficulties that we may be going through. That's why Jesus might have spoken about the beam in the moat. That well, How can you look to get the speck out of your moat out of your brother's eye when you've got a beam in your own, in Matthew 7, 1 through 4. That we need to make sure that whatever judgment is being rendered, that its first and foremost directive is at us, before we start pointing fingers at everybody else. Now, this discernment we're talking about, not just our think so. It has to be rooted in Christ and informed by the revelation of God in Scripture in Colossians 2, 1 through 10, and 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Uh, this is emphasized. And therefore, all things that we do, we need to seek to do to God's glory. That's consistent and constant with His character and will. Um, that we do all things unto the Lord, Romans 14, 6 through 8. And that not everything is going to be profitable, in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 31. And this is very relevant as it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Because the whole idea of having sermons and Bible studies and other kinds of lessons is their applicability. I mean, you can set up a biblical theme, you can explain its truth from Scripture, but then what? You know, there's a lot of lessons that have been preached, and perhaps you've heard where you you get the beginning, you see uh, an interesting idea, you see a theme in Scripture, you see it exposited well in terms of its original context, but then when it comes to its application, uh, perhaps the lesson is lacking. Perhaps it's only directed at other people. Perhaps uh, the speaker has his own ideas in mind that may not be the most direct application. And... What's the value in those situations? What are they being called on to do in order to conform to Jesus, which is our goal in Romans 8, 29? Lessons need to have that idea in mind. What are we trying to get people to do? And that's why any lesson that we preach or teach, or any time we're talking to people about Jesus, needs to be directed to the people that we're actually talking to, to prepare them and equip them to apply their faith to their own lives, so that they can be having that faith working in love. That's the whole idea of equipping the saints for ministry, to build one another up, to avoid false doctrines, absolutely, but mostly to build the body up in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Um, but even if a preacher provides an appropriate application of, of lessons, does that mean that that's it? 
Um, it, there's still plenty of ways that perhaps you can think of your, in your own life to apply a message. So discernment's of the greatest importance in the application. You've got to discern uh, what needs to be applied and how. And so that's the first step that has to happen. And the faith practice will have a lot of the same consistent themes and standards, but how that's going to look in different cultures is going to be different based upon that context. But that's not the only thing that goes into the uh, applying of the gospel message to life. There's also something that's a lost art that often gets missed out, but is very important, and that is meditation. Especially in the Western world, we are in a rushed world with no end of distractions. We're busy. We're busy people, busy doing this and that. And there are so many different ways to spend our time and so many different things that would to direct our focuses and energies. Many times we barely have time to think how we're going to get through the day, let alone anything else. But yet there's this theme that we see throughout the Bible. And we see it first illustrated in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Right after Deuteronomy 6, Moses declares what's called the Shema. uh, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And he says, You shall love the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today, Deuteronomy 6, 6, shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them on your, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house, and on your gates. So there's this expectation that there's constant conversation about what God has said. In Psalm 1 and verse 2, the psalmist says that the man, the blessed man, his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and on his law he meditates day and night. The theme of meditating upon the law of God is also seen in Psalm 119, 15, verse 48, 78, and 148 as well. And in the New Testament, this is not the only, it's not only an Old Testament idea, but in the New Testament, uh, Paul uh, encourages Christians in verse 8 of Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So there's this expectation in both covenants that you put your mental energy into that which is good. And what, of course, is uh, more good than the message of God, either as read in the Bible or as proclaimed faithfully from the Bible. And a lot of the difficulty here that we have is a quote-unquote curse of literacy. And now as we have more technology available, the the quote-unquote curse that comes with that technology. And this was first seen by the philosophers. Plato was complaining about this uh, 400 years before Jesus. And it's been demonstrated in science uh, that the way that you think changes when you learn how to read. And then now, not even just learn how to read, but using the internet. Because when we read, we can think about the things that we have heard or read, but we know that if we forget something, we can access that information very easily later. We can go back and read it. A lot of times we do this. We write down notes with the very intention that if we forget it, well, we've got the note written down that we can go back and read it. When you're an illiterate, you don't have that luxury. And so when you're illiterate, you tend to have a much better uh, hearing capacity, and you have a much better memory of that which you've heard. And there's a lot less emphasis on 
thinking about what you've heard when you can just write it down and you have because in your mind you can tell yourself well if I need to think of if I need to think about that letter notice that even if concept there I can go back and access it in paper as opposed to just being forced to think about it because that's the only way you're going to remember it now the ever-present available internet has taken that one step further now it's not even about knowing the information it's about knowing where to find that information that you not don't even need to remember it but know how to find it again when you need it on the internet um, and so the, the reason that that we bring this up is because there's this emphasis that we have often one of the main practices of Christianity is study your Bible study your Bible read your Bible study your Bible read your Bible study your Bible how many times have you heard in church, if you go to church, read your Bible, study your Bible. How much emphasis is put on reading and studying the Bible? But here's an important question. How much of that reading and study, we're going to be very nice and generous and, and assume that people are reading their Bibles. How much of that reading and studying ever goes beyond just getting new information or retaining information in Scripture and actually gets to inform how somebody lives their lives? What we mean by this is that many people read, and many people do read, but they never come to an applied understanding. They're reading for information. They may not be reading to understand how to put it to practice in their lives. And so there's all these people reading their Bibles. They may have great Bible knowledge, but it's lacking Bible application. But this is what's one of the very interesting things, and maybe you've noticed. Have you noticed in, in Scripture there's not a lot of exhortations to study the Scriptures? Or even to, to to read them, and that's because, for the majority of the history of Christianity, most people couldn't read. Literacy was limited to the elite, the, those the scribes, or in later times, monks and, and and other people of that nature. Your average peasant did not know how to read or write. Now, does that mean the average peasant was cut off from the Word of God? No. Because you can live a faithful life as a Christian and practice righteousness and apply the gospel to life without knowing how to read. But what it demands is hearing. That's why in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul tells Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Because there are a lot of people in that audience who can't read along. And therefore, the only way they understand the Scriptures from its reading, if it's read poorly, then their understanding is going to be poor. Likewise, the emphasis on preaching the gospel and being careful about preaching the gospel is that there may be people who hear it, and that's the way they come to an understanding of the truth. And if therefore anything you say is distorted, they're going to have a distorted understanding of the truth. But let's talk about a good medieval peasant, a medieval peasant who wants to honor the Lord Jesus and follow him. Let's say he goes to church every Sunday. He hears the scripture read in the assembly. He hears a lesson by the preacher. What else would he get there? Like, that would be the sum of his spiritual message. Now, let's say he wants to be a faithful servant of Jesus. What's he going to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday as he's plowing his field? Well, he would think. He would meditate upon what he had heard. He would meditate on the this, on this scripture and on the message he had heard. And let's say that this medieval peasant that the week before had listened to a lesson on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as he goes by, he comes upon a person in need on the road. What's he more likely to do? He's much more likely to help that person in need because he's reflecting mentally on what God expects about us to be proving to be a neighbor 
to one another. Maybe the next week, he's you know, this story was Genesis 39, 1 through 23, how Joseph stayed faithful to God despite sexual temptation. And he comes upon a, a situation where he is tempted to commit adultery against his wife. Will he not be that much more empowered to resist because he is thinking about not just God, but also the message of God and what that message is in his specific context? So if he's thinking about God's will, and he's finding himself in a situation to observe it, wouldn't it be a lot harder for him to disregard and to rebel against it? And that's why there's great value in meditation. Because, yes, in so many ways, so much of the information in our lives, and we're saturated with information in our lives, for so much of it, the important thing is to know where to find it. Absolutely. It's good to know where you can find historical information. It's good to know where you can find information about sports or culture or things like that. But there's something to the Word of God that means that we have to have a whole lot better understanding of it than just where to find it. That we need to listen to it and hear it. Because this is the Word that's supposed to transform our lives. And it can't transform our lives where it's like, well, I, I know where that, around where that is. I can know where I can find it if I need it. It can't change your life if it isn't in you. And if it's just where you know where it is, it isn't in you. Because that's where it needs to be. Because one of the big challenges we have in Christianity is making what is learned on Sunday work from on Monday through Saturday. And part of the reason for that is what you hear on Sunday is left on Sunday. Do you still think about what you hear on Sunday, on Monday, on Wednesday, on Friday? Or have you already forgotten it? But if we do start thinking about it more often, it'll be a lot easier to take that what we hear and to make it part of our lives. If we meditate upon what we've read and heard, and we fill our minds with the words of God and suggestions of how to apply it, it'll be a lot easier to avoid temptation, but also to do what God says, and maybe find other opportunities to apply it. Because as we said earlier with discernment, maybe the preacher has done a terrible job of taking the message of the week and applying it to life. Maybe he's done a fantastic job and has got some great ideas of application. But guess what? The best preacher on earth still isn't you in your particular life. And therefore, there may be applications of the message of that preaching that you need to figure out for your particular situation that's only going to happen if you think about it and meditate upon it and discern from it how to make it work for you. And that has to be something a process that you go through. It's not going to come automatically. It's not going to happen if, oh, well, I, the MP3 or the sermon outline is online. I know where to find it. If you know where to find it, it's not going to be able to transform your life because it's got to be in you. Because this, the righteous man will live by his faith. Habakkuk uh, 2.4, which provides the basis of Romans 1.17, uh, are, are, that we're saved by faith. It's got to be your faith. And it only can be your faith when it is part of who you are and what you think about. And it's only part of what you think about when you're actually thinking about it. It can't work if it's just saved somewhere that you know where to find it. It has to be part of who you are. So yes, we need to discern. But we also need to meditate about what we've heard and read and seen. And we must have our thoughts in the things of God so we can pray for that wisdom and discernment and then ascertain how we can apply the exhortations of the gospel to our lives. But after we have discerned and meditated, that's also great. But there's also importance in planning. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, Paul says that God is faithful and that with every temptation there is a way of escape. And there is always a way of escape from temptation. But how well do we think in the heat of the moment? 
There's a reason why there's this old statement that if you fail to plan, that you're planning to fail. We should not be ignorant of the devil's schemes, according to 2 Corinthians 2.11, and therefore we need to be ready to stand firm against him, put on the arm of God in Ephesians 6.10-18. Thus we need to think about how we're going to apply God's standards of righteousness and sin in various circumstances in which we find ourselves. And in this light, it's, it's, very, mis- it's very unfortunate that there is such a strong critique against situation ethics among Christians. Maybe you've heard a lesson that the preacher has condemned situation ethics as an abomination, as something horrible in the sight of God. And they're very well-meaning, because what they're really trying to do is they're trying to condemn relativism. The idea that in certain circumstance situations, it's okay to tell a lie, it's okay to do things that are wrong. Uh, but that's a relativism. That's, that's trying to make... Uh, right and wrong, or truth and error relative, so that the situation dictates what is true or what is right. And that absolutely is a problem, because if you're dictating what is true or what is right, uh, based upon uh, a relative standard that at certain points X may be right, even though most times it would be wrong, and things of that nature, uh, a lot of the times with, with that kind of stuff, well, lying is okay in this circumstance, that's that's going to be hard to, to justify. And that's kind of self-seeking and a very difficult standard. But that the problem there is relativism. That there's no more absolutes. That right and wrong needs to be experienced by a person at any given point. Uh, the problem is that God has established standard of righteousness according to Scripture in, in Proverbs 3, 3 through 7, and that it is not within a man to direct his own steps in Jeremiah 10, verse 23. And the reason why we're saying this is because, in reality, all ethics are by nature situational. What an ethic is, is how am I going to act in X situation? When I am in this situation, when I have these alternatives open to me, which one am I going to choose? So by nature... Ethics are situational. When we're in a situation, what is the right way to respond? And in fact, Jesus forced us to consider some situation ethics. In Matthew 9, 20 through 23, uh, a woman with a bloody, a dis- bloody discharge for 12 years uh, reaches out to touch him. And she is cleansed from it. And when Jesus confronts her, it's not about making her unclean, even though that would be true according to the laws of purity, but that everybody knows it was by her faith that she was cleansed. And so Jesus' healing authority here goes above the purity concerns. And it's not like Jesus is rendered unclean at that point, in, in a way that means that everybody could not touch him. He goes, in fact, heals another person uh, soon after. Uh, shows that Jesus' power transcends that. In, in Mark chapter 2, verses 23-28, the story is told of the disciples who were eating grain uh, on the Sabbath. They were uh, doing things that would be considered work. The Pharisees were asking why they're doing something not lawful on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus doesn't try to... to to make some argument showing uh, anything else but the fact that David, when his men were hungry, they ate the bread of the presence, which technically they shouldn't have eaten, and that the Lord, uh, the, the, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so he exerted his authority, and he was showing that their hunger, their, their deep need to eat, transcended their concern about the Sabbath at that particular moment. Because the, the disciples were not trying to rebel, they were acting in sincerity. In Luke 10, 25-37, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the reason why the priest and the Levite uh, refused to help the man probably had something to do with uh, not becoming unclean, that they needed to stay ritually clean for their uh, employment, their work. 
And so the question is, what was more important to to maintain somebody's personal cleanliness or holiness or to prove to be a neighbor to someone in need? And we can very easily take that in our own time. If you're heading to church and see somebody in need and you know that taking care of that person in need means you're going to miss the assembly, uh, which is more important, to help somebody in need or to be in the assembly? Because at that moment, you only can do one of the two. In fact, all of these matters... Every single one of these matters we just mentioned, you can make a good biblical argument to defend either side. That Jesus took on pollution and was unclean. You could make the argument that they sh- it was wrong for the disciples to eat that grain. You could make the argument that um, the Levite and the priest had good reason to be concerned for their purity regulation. But what Jesus one emphasized in all of these passages is there is a greater good and a lesser good, even among these things. This requires discernment that the greater good is more important to do, and therefore that's part of, ch- of choosing. That there are times where you need to think about, okay, which of these is more important the side of God? Which one should I make sure to do because I'm limited by my circumstances? And so we need to make sure that we understand that we need not just to do what is right, what is authorized, but also that we do what is most profitable in every circumstance. In First Corinthians 10, verse 23. So that's why we do well to consider as individuals and as a collective how to apply the gospel in various circumstances in life, how we should plan to act when we find ourselves in situations so that we are ready. Because if we are planned, we'll feel more confident to do what God has said as opposed to um, just doing whatever happens in the, in the heat of the moment, which may not be good. So, applying the gospel to our faith and life is crucial if we're going to follow Jesus. And yet, this is fraught with danger. But to apply God's word, we need to discern and meditate and plan. We need to discern the scripture, our times, situation, what God has said, and how we can best apply it. We must meditate upon what God has said and how we can apply it to our circumstance. And we must plan our course of action in our circumstances. And then we can go and do what God has said as we've discerned it, meditated upon it, and plan to do it. Because in the end, there's no substitute for action. You can go ahead and say everything calls for me at discussion and to meditate upon, think about it, and agonize over it over and over and over again. It will mean absolutely nothing if it's not actually worked out in reality. In James 2, 14-26, and 1 John 3, 17, 18, our faith must be active and works. We must, lo- we must love in deed and in, in truth, not just in word. But that action needs to be based on integrity and righteousness in its preparation. So let us therefore discern, meditate upon, and plan for how we apply God's will to our lives, and then go and do it, and I follow the Lord Jesus. And again, we're so glad that you spent this time with us. We hope that you've been uh, strengthened in what you've heard. Uh, if we can help you in any way, if you'd like to talk more about this, if you'd like to uh, discuss another issue, maybe you'd like to learn more about how to become a Christian, maybe you're going through some difficulties, maybe you have a prayer request, any way we can help you, please let us do so. Please go ahead and contact me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or, if you'd like to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ, we encourage you to check us out online. We're on VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media, on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Meetup, YouTube, many of the places, mostly at Venice Church, Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.